From Warren and NYC, it's Effort, a show based on our live storytelling series where female leaders and entrepreneurs share raw and personal stories of challenges they've overcome in their careers and what they learned in the hustle to achieve success. We're Warren. We plot with other women-owned businesses to take over the world. <laughs> We're actually an admission-based creative agency that works directly with female-run companies, campaigns, and products because we know that when women succeed, everyone succeeds. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Effort Radio. I'm Nicole Corbett, and I am here with Elena Cohen. Welcome to Effort Radio. Thanks. I'm so excited to have you on. We are so impressed by you <laughs> and the work that you do. So I'm excited just to chat with you about you know, your work and the things that inspire you to do what you do every day. So thank you so much. Totally. So let's start by chatting about little bit about your background. Can you give people a sense of your job and what you do every day? So I actually do a lot of things and it really wasn't planned, but my current jobs that I have right now is I'm an attorney and I do criminal defense, mostly for people arrested at protests. I do a lot of representing animal rights activists because I'm a vegan and an animal rights activist also. And then I also do civil rights litigation for people arrested by the police. And then also as a lawyer, I do a lot of surrogates court work for people who die without wills and have lawsuits. So it started as part of like wrongful death by police or correction officers because the vast majority of people who are killed by police or correction officers in New York City don't have a will. Um, So in order to even sue, you have to do this step in a separate court and it can be really expensive and really time consuming and it ends up being a barrier for low-income families to be able to um, get justice for like their loved one who's died. So I do that and that's my lawyer stuff that I do. And then I'm an editorial assistant for Women's Studies Quarterly at the Feminist Press. And that's what pays most of my bills. And I'm a grad student at the CUNY Grad Center, which is across the street from where we are now. (laughs) And I'm finishing my dissertation in political theory and it, it goes on I wow. know this is just like my this is my daily jobs and I'm a research assistant for a professor doing comparative constitutional law and I feel like I'm missing something but those are the like everyday jobs wow that I balance I can't believe you balance so many things it's fantastic it's a lot yeah <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how what was it that inspired you? Was there a moment? What inspired you to work on social justice or you know civil rights cases? So I guess the, I mean, I guess the precursor backstory to this is that I grew up in a really political family and my mom taught women how to breastfeed and she was really into politics around gender and women's issues. And so I was brought to protests as like a little baby and I have a lot of early you know, political memories. So I think I was just brought up in a more, yeah, like political atmosphere. And then I actually went to high school for performing arts for dance. I went to college for art history. So all of my like schooling was in the arts. Mm -hmm. And then I just wanted after college to to make differences in the world and to change things. And I'd always done social justice as my hobby and I wanted it to be my life. So I went to law school. Can you tell us more about how it was your hobby? What were you doing related to social justice? So things that seem funny now, I was the president of Amnesty International at my school. And when I studied abroad in England, I was like a part of their 
peace council there. So it was my like extracurricular activity. Yeah. Were your parents involved in politics or were they activists? So I think my dad is pretty opposed to actually being involved in politics and enjoys reading and complaining about things more. But my (laughs) mom was definitely really involved in activism and yeah, especially issues around pregnant people and about people who've had babies and children and things like that. Why do you think that is? That she was involved in it? Yeah. I think that both of my parents really recognized injustice and really care about people and the future. But yeah, my mom just always did activism for women too and other things like that and was out in the streets when something happened, like going to rallies, going to protests and marches, bringing me, you know, they were politically active people, yeah. especially my mother. How old do you think you were at your first protest? Oh, I was a little baby. There's wow. pictures of me like being carried in her back and like a little thing. My dad's there too and it's very cute. So I was like less than six months old. Wow. Okay, so this has really been your whole life. Yeah. Wow. Okay, and so what was your first job out of college that was in civil rights or social justice related to what you're doing now? So my first one was an externship at Equal Justice Alliance, and I was really excited about it, and I actually still do a lot of work from it and a lot of the connections. So what people say about unpaid externships, I mean, I just cannot recommend it enough. It like really got my foot in the door in all these ways that have helped me get like paid jobs and things that are really amazing now. But what it was was about the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which I don't know if people know, but it basically made animal activists terrorists. And some people had just been arrested under it and were serving between three to six years in prison on federal terrorism charges for just running a website. That's all they had done. And actually, this is skipping forward, but I'm finally really close friends with one of those people now who was like at the time when she was in prison is why I started doing this activism. And I ended up being friends with her through totally different channels. Can you explain this law? And I've yeah. never heard of this and tell us if this is still in place. So it's still in place and it's really terrible. So I think it was passed in somewhere in the early 2000s and it's called the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, or ADA is the acronym that people use. Mm -hmm. So the government, like it often can't find animal activists who are doing things like property damage, right? Or who are releasing animals. So what they did was they passed this law that basically said, if any property has been damaged, they can tie in anyone who in any way has been involved in that. And how long you go to prison is based on the cost of damage and damage includes lost profits. So these people were running this website called Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty, and SHAC is the acronym for it. And this is a lab that made the equipment that tests on animals. So they would test all of their equipment and none of it was for medical progress, right? They're just testing the things that scientists could use to test on animals. And there were all these investigations by the U.S. government that said that when they went there, and this is like official U.S. government investigations, said it was as if the animals were rotting even though they were still alive. So, I mean, just one of the most horrible things you can think of, right? And so this group of people started a campaign with tons of public pressure, tons of public action. They got all of these banks, basically anyone who invested in them, who worked with them, They put a ton of public pressure on and got them to dissociate themselves with this really, really horrible company. 
But, you know, they're breaking U.S. laws. They're breaking all these laws. Everybody agreed. And in, even though it was a U.S. company in England, a national bank actually bailed them out, which is unheard of. So they were going bankrupt and about to be bankrupt. And this campaign was working. And these people who run the website, what happened was any actions against them, they would send in. And this was, you know, right at the beginning of websites. Yeah. <laughs> and so they would, I think, send them like anonymous letters even not even emails, and they would post on the website anything that had happened. So some of it was we protested, or some of it was we broke windows. Okay. No one was hurt, um, but there was property damage, and whatever came in, they just posted on the website. And the government indicted the people who arrested and indicted the people who ran the website and the website itself. They were called the Shack 7. It was six activists and a website. I believe it's seven. Um, it was six activists and a website, and... Um, they all went to trial and were found guilty under the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. They're all terrorists, and they served between three to six years in prison for it. One of the people was in solitary confinement for almost all of it Whoa. because he was political, and a bunch of them I'm close to now. But so this is what happened. And so this organization formed the Equal Justice Alliance, basically just by this woman who's an attorney in Queens, heard about this and was like, we have to get rid of this law. And also other states were starting to adopt state versions of it. And so that was my first job trying to get this law repealed, which we didn't win. It's still there. And the government didn't arrest anyone under it for about 10 years. And they just indicted two people under it who both have now pled guilty and are in prison. So it's still here. That was not, so maybe this isn't the most inspiring story in terms of a legal win. <laughs> we didn't, but yeah. we stopped um, several states from passing versions, though. Mm -hmm. They all failed. And this is specifically for animal rights activists. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it's specifically for animal rights activists, but our argument was that they define an animal enterprise so broadly, it's anything, it's any business that makes money through animal products. So that includes everywhere, right? Like, Anywhere that has any restaurant, pretty much that isn't a vegan restaurant, right. if you targeted any company that makes any clothes that had wool or silk, right? So it's anyone who causes, and like I said, lost profits is part of the law. So if you make any company lose money that uses animal products, which is pretty much every company, then you can be found a terrorist under federal law. Wow, that's shocking. Yeah. So tell me more about some of the cases that you've worked on so far in your career. Like, what's What have been some of the most memorable things or, or you know, maybe something that you're really proud of? Well, something that I'm working on now that's really big is the New York City Police Department has these long-range acoustic devices, and they're called LRADs for short. And they're a type of acoustic weapon that was designed to stop pirates in Somalia. It was designed by the U.S. military. And what it is, is it makes noises so loud that you can convey your intent over a mile away. So it's a speaker that you, people can hear you a mile away. Wow. And then it has a deterrent tone that is so strong that it stops people from advancing. But it was meant to stop pirates from advancing from a mile away. So the sound is so loud that it can cause permanent hearing damage and it causes an immense amount of pain. It's pain compliance tool is what the manufacturing materials call it. 
So what the Elrod Corporation did was they decided they should start selling these to law enforcement because we know how militarized law enforcement has become. And the NYPD has several versions of these LRADs. And they used the deterrent tone. It was about three years ago now at several different protests. And so I have a lawsuit against NYPD for their use of these long-range acoustic devices. I have six clients, five of whom still have ringing in their ears about half the time. They went to doctors. One of them had his hearing was imbalanced in both ears and had to take steroids. And these are just people who are either at protests or they're mostly journalists who are documenting the protests. And that is pending. And we just had our big oral arguments in the case. The city moved to dismiss it. This was just last week when we had our big arguments and we're waiting for a decision from the judge about whether or not the lawsuit can go forward. And the city moved to dismiss your case? Yeah, because they said that they were using the LRAD to make the protesters safer. That is their argument. I can send you all the news articles. There's a ton about it in their papers. But their argument is that they needed to use, first off, their argument is they're not weapons. They're just megaphones. Even though the manufacturing materials from the company say that they're pain compliance tools, they say that they're deter- the name of the, the alarm sound is a deterrent tone. So how you could say this is just a loudspeaker is, I mean, it's just completely facetious. No one would think this. It's called a deterrent tone. I see. In their literature. That's the name of the tone. Mm-hmm. It's labeled deterrent tone. So we're having the lawsuit, and the lawsuit says that we want the NYPD to stop using them until they've tested them in New York City, right? Because the way sound bounces off of buildings, it's different than an ocean in Somalia. And they haven't tested them in the streets of New York City Mm -hmm. at all, as far as we know. Mm -hmm. We want the officers that are using them to be trained, right? In the video footage that you see of the night, it was used as a person in a wheelchair. How can a person... And the manufacturer's material says that people won't be hurt because they'll cover their ears while they move away. A person in a wheelchair can't necessarily cover their ears while they move away. If you think of children, if you think of there as an elderly person in the street of New York, because they just use in the street of New York who had a hearing aid in, what that could do to your hearing if you have this tone with a hearing aid. Mm. Anyway, so we want them to have training, testing, and guidelines for their use and not be able to use them anymore until this. Mm-hmm. Do you know if they've used them in any other circumstance in New York? So they use them in the loudspeaker capacity and they bring them to protests all the time. There's littler versions that are handheld and there's bigger ones that go on a truck. Um, and they use both in protests and they they use them as if they're megaphones. But the problem is even using it like this, this isn't a megaphone. This is, it works differently than a speaker because it's a directed cone of sound. Mm-hmm. So even just in its megaphone capacity, if you're in front of the cone and it's at its top volume, that could cause permanent hearing damage. Wow. Basically, the NYPD have these devices that cost, I think the big one costs about a million dollars. And they're just using them as if they're megaphones, which they are not. So that's my big thing right now. And what are some of the issues that you are personally passionate about? I know we met you the night before the Women's March on Washington in D.C., that you were a part of that as well. So personally, I'm really passionate about rights for women and queer people and trans people. I mean... It's hard to imagine growing up as someone who was assigned to be a woman and identifies as a woman and not (laughs) feel like these issues are really important and really pressing right now. And I'm queer also. 
So all of that, I just feel very personally. And then, like I said, I'm an animal rights activist. I'm thinking more about you know your passion for animals and also for women. And obviously, you grew up going to protests and being somebody that was active in, in issues that you and your family were passionate about. Um, I'm wondering, how do you see yourself, like your your role in in the world? I know that's a really open-ended question, <laughs> but I'm curious. I guess, how do I see myself and my role in the world? Well, I think that I am good at being organized and at organizing people. And I think that I'm good at facilitating and leading situations. I'm also right now the executive vice president of the National Lawyers Guild. And I was the president of the chapter in New York City for the past two years. And I think that that type of activism, where it's gathering legal communities and legal responses and having the legal responses to these events be as coordinated as possible, as efficient as possible, is where I think I see my role. I've always been more interested in the macro view and less in exactly. It's not that I don't do the work because I do the work every day and I've stayed up, you know, very late every night for the past four nights in a row writing motions. But I guess that I see my role in a leading, organizing, coordinating way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So right now, right after the Women's March, there's been protest after protest going on. Can you explain to us what the, is it the Lawyers Guild? The National Lawyers Guild. The National Lawyers Guild. What do they do? And, And then two, have you or people that you work with been involved in representing people at protests, you know, throughout these first few weeks of the new administration? Oh, yeah, definitely. I can answer both of those. So the National Lawyers Guild is the oldest progressive bar association. It was founded in the 1930s, and our mass defense committee started in the 1960s. And the National Lawyers Guild has a bunch of different committees that are doing work right now. So the mass defense committee is the one that sends out legal observers, which you might have seen at protests, the people wearing the green hats, and they they document interactions between police and protesters, and in the event of arrest could serve as witnesses for protesters as neutral parties who weren't protesting themselves and were able to watch what's going on and who are trained in how to watch for these interactions. Mm-hmm. And then the National Lawyers Guild also either our members represent activists in court for either pro bono or low bono, depending on the place, or we coordinate representation to help match people with public defenders and just make sure that anyone who puts themselves out protesting ends up feeling you know, cared for afterwards and supported. And then the National Lawyers Guild also has an immigration committee, and it's called the National Immigration Project. And the National Immigration Project has been very, very active with the travel ban. Lots of attorneys associated with the National Lawyers Guild have been in airports, have been writing the habeas petitions. And then another part of the National Lawyers Guild, the National Police Accountability Project, they work on litigation against the police, which is what we're gonna see with a lot of these trumped up arrest charges in DC because people were charged with felony charges of inciting a riot, right? Um, And this is the kind of thing that I assume lawsuits are going to come out of because people, these charges are already being dismissed. And it's our argument that 
over 200 people were arrested on felony charges because... Was this the night of inauguration? This was the day of the inauguration, yeah. Over 200 people were arrested on felony charges of inciting a riot. And what these people were doing was they were blocking the security entranceways to the inauguration. And the fact that they got charged with felony inciting a riot is shocking. There are protests all the time in D.C. The charges for people who block entrances to official things are much lower. They did the same thing that people have been doing for years with the same police force. And this time, over 200 people were charged with felonies and were already starting to get dismissals because a lot of the people arrested were journalists, were these legal observers from the National Lawyers Guild. And it's just clearly not you know, inciting riot charges. And people think that it's part of this culture of fear so that people will be afraid to protest and that if you protest before it used to be no big deal. Maybe you spend a night in jail, you pay a small fine, you're out in a few hours, and instead it's you'll be facing felony charges that, you know, could stop you from being able to vote ever again. Can you tell us, you know, if, because we're in New York City right now, yeah. this, what are your rights as a protester in New York City? So the National Lawyers Guild does Know Your Rights trainings, okay. and I do Know Your Rights trainings. <laughs> yeah. So I could do one if you like, and they're, you know, an hour, two hours long with... Yeah. With interactive things, but the really short version of <laughs> the really short version of knowing your rights as it relates to protesters. I'll tell you that one. One important thing is that if you're arrested as a protester, you should not say anything to the police. Uh, this is a big one. If police start to talk to you, say that you're going to be silent say that you want a lawyer and really be silent. Lots of people try to talk themselves out of being arrested when they're a protester. And it's a criminal defense lawyer saying that you can't talk yourself out of arrest, but you can talk yourself into a conviction. Um, and so people will say things like, I wasn't doing anything else anyone else wasn't. And so my main advice for protesters is do not say anything. You are not going to talk yourself out of being arrested. <laughs> And then there's not that many really good rights when it comes to it. In New York City specifically, the main charges that protesters are arrested for in New York City is disorderly conduct, which is a violation, so it's not even a crime. It's the legal equivalent of a jaywalking ticket. So for most people arrested for protesting in New York City, it'll probably be dismissed and the charges are very low anyway. So it's typically low stakes. And it's typically low stakes in DC also. But in order to be arrested for disorderly conduct, you have to be blocking either pedestrian traffic or vehicular traffic. So if you're out protesting and you want to either not be arrested or are going to attempt to talk to police, just know that if you're on a sidewalk and there's enough space so that pedestrians are moving through freely, you should be okay. And that anytime you're at a street, if you're in a street that's open to traffic, you could be arrested for blocking vehicular traffic. But in terms of rights for protesters, it's pretty difficult because for the most part, my opinion on this is that the NYPD wants to shut down most protests, especially ones that I think actually have chances of changing things, right? And you can know your rights and know technically what you're allowed to do. That's not going to stop you from getting arrested. <laughs> and then, like I said, these charges aren't serious. So there's not really repercussions for police just arresting everybody. People's charges get this conditional dismissal that we have in New York, where if you don't get arrested for six months afterwards, your charges are dismissed and sealed. So most people arrested 
and protest, get this thing where if you don't get arrested for six more months, your charges are dismissed and sealed. For something like disorderly conduct? Yeah, exactly. Can you spend a night in jail for disorderly conduct? So not typically. If you're arrested for disorderly conduct, they normally either give you what's called a desk appearance ticket or a summons, which is a date to come back to court. But if you don't have an ID on you or if you have an open warrant, then you end up spending a night in jail unless you get arrested very early in the morning. And then you end up spending a night in jail because they'll, they'll only give you the ticket to return later if you have a valid government ID and no open warrants. And open warrants, this is something important for people to know we're going to protest. Open warrants include stupid things you forgot about, right? When you got a ticket for like bicycling the wrong way in a one-way street, you never went to court. It's not a big deal, but if you just never went to court and you get arrested at a protest for disorderly conduct, Instead of being in custody for four hours and getting a ticket to return, you end up spending 24 hours in jail while they clear your old bicycle ticket. So what would you say to someone who is really passionate about civil rights and social justice and is thinking maybe that they want to become a lawyer? Okay, so I have mixed feelings about going to law school. Law school is expensive, even if you have a full scholarship. The way law school is structured, or most law schools are structured, is that you really can't have a job your first year and your second two years. Your job is going to have to be part-time. I had an f- almost full scholarship to law school, and with the amount of loans that I had to take out to live on, even though my second and third years I had a part-time job, I'm in a ton of debt from. And if you want to do civil rights litigation and this lawyering for the good, you're not going to be making you know, $150,000 a year starting. And it's really something to consider because I think there is a lot of work you can do to help with civil rights and to help with policy that doesn't involve being a lawyer. If you just get active in your community and community organizing, you can do that. A lot of things like that, you end up being able to have paid jobs that would find fulfilling. Of the people I went to law school with, honestly, I'd say two thirds of them have jobs you don't need a law degree for. And maybe having the law degree help them get that job. But at the same time, having a PhD would also help. And I'm getting a PhD now. And a PhD typically is funded. So you're not paying and you're being given money to live on, right? So if you get a PhD, you still have this great qualification. I still think it helps get jobs. But you're not in a ton of student loan debt. And law school also is set up to just be incredibly exhausting. It's about, it's a hazing ritual. Taking the bar exam is also very hard. Being a lawyer is then expensive. I have to pay, I think it's $400 every two years just to stay registered. And you have to take continuing legal education classes, which you can find for free, but that's even more time on top of time you don't have, right? So I guess my thought is that, you know, really think about what you want to do. And if What you want to do is be in court litigating civil rights cases, then go to law school. But if what you want to do is something more of what I wanted to do, which is just general, like, help the world through legal stuff, I don't know if going to law school was the right fit for me or necessary, which is why I ended up getting a PhD afterwards because I decided I just wanted to teach. But then this is a good story if you'd like a story added in. So after law school, I decided that rather than getting a job as an attorney or practicing, I would get a PhD and either teach in a law school or or teach law. And I wanted to be back in a university setting. And I didn't want to be in the courts doing this day-to-day work. I had another internship. I worked for a law firm over the summer, and it just didn't feel like the, the right fit for me. 
I kind of thought going to law school had been a mistake. I enjoyed the classes in law school and I enjoyed learning, but I was like, I did not need to spend this much money and effort <laughs> right now. Right. And my last semester of law school, I had a class with someone at the New York Civil Liberties Union, and it was a practical class in litigating before the Supreme Court. And I was talking to him about how I was just going to get a PhD and I wasn't actually going to go into litigating. And he told me that that was his plan and that he'd actually gone to law school and decided he wasn't going to do lawyering. And then Kent State happened and he got dragged into lawyering and is now a lawyer and, you know, a big person at the New York Civil Liberties Union and that I shouldn't be too sure that I'm not going to end up being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And... I went to get a PhD. I took the bar exam, but I didn't even get admitted to the bar. And then my second year of getting a PhD, Occupy Wall Street happened. And I was like, oh, I'll help. And then before I knew it, I was a criminal defense lawyer and a civil rights lawyer. Oh, and he's right. I just, yeah, he was totally right. I woke up one day like a year ago, so like five years after all of this started. And I was just like, oh, man, like he was totally right. I'm a civil rights lawyer and an attorney and a practicing lawyer. Wow. So for sure, right? Yeah. So one of my last questions is going to be, have you found yourself in situations personally where you've been glad that you are a lawyer and know the law? Oh, totally. I have found myself in situations where I'm happy that I'm a lawyer and know the law really often, partially for advising other people, partially for knowing what what to do on my own, right? When I'm at protests and some people just get arrested at protests doing every single thing right and there's nothing you can do to stop yourself from being arrested if someone decides they're going to arrest you, right? But but because I know the law and because I know police responses and what police buildup looks like and through civil rights litigation I know what they do before they arrest people. I get to feel pretty secure that it's like okay, they're they're building up here, you know, if I don't want it to be arrested or I don't want anyone with to be arrested, we leave this area or you know, they're making this type of order here that I think is unconstitutional and vague and unclear, but because I know I'm a lawyer, I know they want us to leave. So I think that knock on wood it helps me not get arrested in situations. And then occasionally, you know, when I'm at protests or demonstrations and, and police are giving orders, you, you can talk to them and try to say, you know, I know you know from your training that in this situation, this isn't the type of situation you should be giving dispersal orders and that this is the type of situation where you're supposed to let this continue. And sometimes police are receptive to that and, and let protesters stay and continue protesting. So you've said that to them before and they've backed off? Sometimes, or? yeah. Really? It depends. You can actually, this is interesting too for people who are protesters, the um, New York Patrol Guide, which is the rules for police officers, is available as an app. You can download it. It's updated. I think it's like something like 20 or $40. It's not cheap. It actually says, in this situation, you should arrest people. In this situation, you should give orders to disperse. And so, occasionally you can be at a protest and if you have it open and be like look call your supervisor or sometimes there's legal bureau attorneys there you know talk to this person and you know you'll see like like look at your patrol guide look at this section it says this and sometimes people listen and sometimes they don't what's your idea of a sort of activist utopia and i'm asking you this question <laughs> because i just read the feminist utopia project which was yeah. published by the feminist press yeah totally. and it's an incredible book and so I feel like you'd be a really great person to ask, you know, what that would look like for you. An activist utopia. I actually write about utopia, too, and I have a work in this biopolitics and utopia book. So you didn't know it, but I'm actually a utopia scholar, too. So 
But an activist utopia, I guess in my activist utopia, activists wouldn't exist because you wouldn't even need to have people fighting against the system because you would just have some sort of system or non-system that was just and inclusive and responsive to people's needs. And you wouldn't need this, this separate group of activists. I guess everybody would be an activist in my activist utopia of being able to either speak for themselves or have someone speak for them or with them and feel heard. And maybe I'm getting a PhD in political theory, so it's probably too meta for now. But, you know, if everybody's an activist, are there any activists? If everyone's an activist, is it just how you are? Right. So how can people who are listening support your work or the things that you are passionate about as well? So the financial money (laughs) way would be to give donations to the National Lawyers Guild or New York City to the New York City chapter of the National Lawyers Guild. I think other organizations are great to donate to. The National Lawyers Guild attorneys are really the ones who are out there on the streets, who are there in the courts, who are there in the airports. Like This is the organization that is the radical people who are out there putting their bodies on the line for activists. And I'm not saying anything against other bigger civil liberties union, but I think that there is a difference between kind of doing your activism more safely in the courts versus putting your bodies on the line in the streets. And I think that's what the National Lawyers Guild does, which is why, you know, I'm so associated with them and I love being able to to lead and work with them. And then otherwise, what people could do to be involved would be, I guess, maybe just show up. I feel like there's all of these people who are organizing a ton of different events and different types of ones that I think are are pretty inclusive, right? There's protests for people who feel safe and comfortable being out on the streets. There's smaller, more intimate events for people who feel better and want to discuss. There's fundraisers at bars for people who want there to be the more party fun. And I think what people can do right now is just show up to all these events that people are putting on and and be present and, and talk to people. I think, I think that's my answer. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Effort Radio. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a written review. We'd really appreciate it and it would help other women to discover this podcast and be inspired by the stories. You can also find us online at www.warn.nyc forward slash effort or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Warn Creative. That's W-O-R-N Creative. See you next week.